the gold rush of managed services is quickly coming to an end. Over the next 10 years, we're going to see a consolidation and culling of managed service providers across the board. That's a direct quote from Tim Conkle, the CEO of the 20, the MSP consortium. To put a finer point on it, there are more than 40,000 MSPs in the U.S. alone. The ones that are going to survive and thrive are those that will take advantage of the massive and growing to the tune of $80 billion cybersecurity and compliance opportunity. That's where Aptiga comes in. Aptiga is the end-to-end GRC platform that security-focused IT providers use to build and manage world-class cybersecurity and compliance programs for their clients simply, quickly, and affordably. It's trusted by hundreds of MSPs and MSSPs who are growing lucrative security practices, creating stickier customer relationships, and winning more business from competitors. For more, visit aptiga.com. That's A-P-P-T-E-G-A.com. All right. Hello and welcome everyone to the de-risking business podcast presented by Aptiga. I'm your host, Robert Hilson, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Ian Patterson, the CEO of Pluralock, a cybersecurity solution that uses AI to identify, prevent, and eliminate insider threats. Uh, Ian's run that rapidly growing business for about seven and a half years at this point. Before that was the founder and CEO of Exapic, uh, which was a data analytics business that he grew basically from nothing to uh, Ian's six figures in recurring revenue of the first six months before acquisition. Uh, Ian, it's really great to have you here. Uh, You've done a lot of really interesting work in this space and uh, really looking forward to talking to you. Robert, it's great to be here and I'm excited to chat. Same here. So um, our topic today is around kind of how AI is being used in cybersecurity and beyond that, really just kind of transforming the space as it's transforming many industries. Um, Before we get into that, Ian, just tell us a little bit more about Pluralock, um, what you guys do, who who, uh, your customers are and kind of where where you see the company going from here. Well, I appreciate that that opportunity. So Pluralock is a cybersecurity company. We were actually founded on the ability to detect people using artificial intelligence. Uh, so we are we are deep, deep, deep practitioners of AI and data science. Frankly, since since way before it was sexy to uh, to, to be in the space. Um, so we have a, a unique capability of recognizing uh, who you are based on how you type and move a mouse. Uh, so it's something called behavioral biometrics. We've packaged that into a product called Pluralock AI. Um, and that product is used by large enterprises. It's it's historically, we've we've talked about being procured by uh, Department of Defense and, and government agencies. But it really, it fits a, a need uh, for zero trust architectures. If you think about traditional multi-factor authentication, provides pretty good protection when you initially sit down and you log into a computer doesn't really do anything two hours after you've logged in, doesn't do anything eight hours after you've logged in. And one of the one of the questions that uh, that CISOs and CIOs have is, hey, are you still the same person who logged in first thing in the morning? Um, and so our product uh, helps answer that question. Uh, so it's an endpoint agent. It, it runs continuously. It's doing identity checks every five to 10 seconds. Um, f- funnily enough, I was actually talking to one of our large uh, banking customers last week and uh, we, we were talking about AI usage inside the enterprise, which I th- we'll probably talk about more on, on today's podcast. But but he he just sort of matter of fact said, oh, you know, by the way, we had a, a true positive with um, with your product. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, we actually had a situation where it was an employee. They're working from home. They had logged in. They had uh, two factor authentication to initially log in. Um, and the, the system detected that after that person had logged in, somebody else was on the device. So their their team 
uh, had a conversation. It was it was flagged as an incident. They had a conversation, um, and it turned out that it was one of the kids in the household. Oh wow! Uh, who was actually on that device? And so you know th- that's just an, an example of of what we defend against. But it's also you know it's a hard problem, uh, particularly in a work from home setting. So in any case, Plurlock AI um, that's that's really our bread and butter. Uh, we, we as a company have, have also been growing through acquisition. Uh, we've made four acquisitions over the last, uh, two years. Um, and, uh, and so last year we reported revenues of $64 million, which is up from half a million dollars about, uh, two, two or three years ago. So we've seen tremendous growth. Um, and as a result, we see a lot of both enterprises and mid-market clients. Um, and what I've seen particularly over the last week or two is just, how many CIOs and business leaders are trying to figure out how to use AI inside their business? So I'm looking forward to, to having the conversation. Do you see um, do you see more adoption within the enterprise? I mean, that, that would make logical sense to me. But you're you're saying that the, the mid market is potentially catching up as well. I think I'm. I think it's everything. It's not just it's not not just the big companies. I mean, what I will say is I've seen public uh, announcements from large companies. Um, you know, Dun and Bradstreet, as an example, just a week ago published that they're launching an AI labs. I've seen similar announcements from uh, large institutions um, announcing investments in the area. So that's at the big company scale. At the mid-market, I'm having a lot of conversations around uh, organizations either running formal experiments with ChatGPT or running unofficial experiments. I'm also seeing end users reporting, hey, we have no guidance, but we're using ChatGPT on a daily basis. Yep. In fact, I was talking to one government user and he was saying that ChatGPT is is crucial to his daily workflow. And yet he was complaining about the fact that there was no safe approved version of ChatGPT. And so he was holding back on copying and pasting things that he considered sensitive because he didn't know what was going to happen to that data. So I think that there's a lot of attention on this space. There's not a lot of consensus yet on how to use these things safely, um, nor how to use the outputs safely. So there's certainly concern about what data is flowing into these systems. There's also concern about data that's coming back and not only data, but also uh, directions. So I've got I've got a bit of an anecdote where I was talking to uh, uh, somebody in the in the financial services space, and he was relaying a, a situation where an organi- a user, excuse me, um, was interacting with ChatGPT, and ChatGPT said, "Hey, can you send me some details about this?" And the user replied back saying, "Well, I I actually can't. Um, my my corporate policies, you know, prohibit me from uploading a file." And they said, "Oh, don't worry about that. Just send it to me via email." And he gave a fake email, or sorry, ChatGPT gave the user a made up email, something like ChatGPT at gmail.com and said, no problem, just email me the file. Now, it was remarkable because nobody expected that to happen. And it was remarkable enough that it's now caused, I mean, I heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody, right? And so, but it's causing a lot of attention saying, huh, I didn't even think to cover that in the user awareness and training you know, about using large language models. So right. it's definitely a Cambrian explosion right now of solutions that are out there. Everybody's trying to figure out what to do. And there's there's definitely a lot of concern uh, around how to do so safely. Okay, so this is a, a great jumping off point for this discussion. And we'll maybe keep it high level and then we'll kind of jump into the weeds. But when you think about when organizations are trying to protect their sensitive data, when they're trying to protect their people, their businesses in general, 
when you think about kind of the main advantages and disadvantages of AI kind of as it exists right now, like what would you say that they are? I think the big one is that AI cuts down on the the smaller mundane tasks. Mm. So I don't see AI as a replacement for humans yet. We might get there in the future, but right now AI is really good at 80%, but you need a human to do the first and the last 10%. And so AI can be really helpful. It can really speed up workflows. I mean, using this government worker as one example, he had a lot of uh, manual repetitive tasks. He would go, he would talk to a company, he would summarize that company uh, in an email, he would summarize what that company does, their products and services. And that was a repetitive task that he did a lot of. And it was different. Obviously, every company that you talk to is different. So it's hard to script. Um, but you can use AI to to really cut down. And so his first and last 10% were describing what company to go out and summarize uh, and how to, to actually do that summarization. He would then give the data to presumably ChatGPT because um, he, he was complaining there wasn't anything else safer to use. And then the last 10% was, okay, well, who's that going to go to? Is that going to go to his boss? Is that going to go to somebody else? So it, it, it dramatically shortened his workflow. And by shaving off a little bit of time, you know, repeatedly every day, you actually get a lot of your time back. So that's a great use. I think where it becomes challenging is if you have something that requires absolute accuracy, um, ChatGPT or, or large language models, of which ChatGPT is one example of, um, are, are are not there yet when it comes to guaranteeing accuracy, right? We, we've we've heard about this hallucination problem. Right. Um, and so for, for summarizing a company where you're looking at the company, you can compare the summary basically in real time and you kind of know if it's if it's on the mark or not, I think it can be a good use case. And, and there's certainly other use cases that we can talk about that I've seen. And your point about um, efficiency and driving productivity, I mean, there's obviously, you know, a, a lot of fear around, is AI going to displace my job? It seems like AI is going to place a, a lot of uh, people who are not well-equipped at using AI to make themselves more productive. Would you say that that's accurate? I think I think that uh, what I am seeing in practice is that people who are not using AI will be replaced by people who are using AI. Right, Exactly. Yeah, well, well put. Um, so in, in your experience, um, where are you seeing businesses effectively use AI, um, particularly to enhance cybersecurity posture and then also build out compliance programs as well? So it's a good question. There's a lot of attention right now on using AI inside the SOC. So Security Operations Center uh, typically is staffed by the most junior cyber practitioners. These, I mean, this can be as, as, uh, um, as junior as interns or co-op students. Mm -hmm. And they're typically thrust onto the front lines. They have the least amount of domain expertise. They have the least amount of experience. And they are bombarded with alerts and log files that they're trying to disambiguate and understand, is this a real threat? Is this an incident? Is it not? And so I think that there's there's a ton of attention right now on how do we uh, better enable those junior people to have the body of knowledge that uh, an experienced cyber worker would have. Um, and I and so I think that there's there's a bunch of solutions in that space. Ecentire is one company that just announced um, something there. I think Microsoft Sentinel has also announced some stuff. So I think that's that's a place that everybody is looking at. To me, the thing that I find actually more interesting are the use cases outside of security, but that still matter for security. So to give you some examples, 
uh, one of the concerns that I've heard just over the last couple of weeks is in the area of HR. So what happens when an employee um, has a couple of complaints against them that were sent to the HR representative? The HR representative says, shoot, I've got three complaints. I got to write this guy up. I got to write a, a reprimand letter. Mm-hmm. And so that that HR worker copies and pastes all of those HR complaints, maybe the employee's file, dumps it into ChatGPT or some other large language model and says, hey, write up a reprimand letter. Now, the challenge with that uh, is that who knows where that data is going? Um, maybe they're using the free version of ChatGPT, which can reuse the data that gets put into it for training. And now what have you just taught ChatGPT? Maybe maybe they're using an enterprise version where that data is not used for training. And so it's not as big of a deal. But the, the, the point is, Rob, the business today doesn't know the answer to that question. They don't. They actually don't know. Hey, are you using the the, the free version, the consumer version, the enterprise version? Um, do we have a data leak? Do we have a disclosure? Right. Those are the problems. And so I think where that presents opportunities for the security teams are to say, hey, there's there's some activity taking place that would be great to get aware of. There's also potentially activity taking place that we may need some controls around. Um, And how can we deploy those at scale so that we can actually enable the business to be able to leverage these these productivity improving applications? Mm -hmm. Going back to the thing you mentioned about um, kind of enhancing the productivity and the skills of junior level people. Um, I, I know you said that was kind of a, a less interesting kind of use case to you, but I, I, I think it is interesting to the extent that there is a massive uh, gap in cybersecurity talent, right? That like, like we, we don't, we don't have a lot of education. We don't, we don't have a lot of programs that, that quickly get up, get people up to speed in the space. So I, I mean, I do think that that's, that's potentially going to be one of the big outcomes here. Well, I think you're right. And to be clear, I, I think that it's an interesting space. I just think that there is a ton of attention already there. Right. And the thing that I'm looking at is where is there not attention and yet where is there still impact? So I think any any uh, emerging uh, practitioner is going to be aided a lot by uh, by AI, generally ChatGPT specifically. I think one of the other things, though, um, that I've seen, and this this was echoed in, in a lot of the conversations um, that I've had with with CIOs just over the last couple of weeks, is this idea of starting from scratch. So I'll give you two examples. I think the first example here, I was talking to a, a large tech company, um, and they have a, a domain specific uh, search. So think of like a, a search engine, but but for a specific domain. I won't I won't give the specific one because it'll just be too obvious. But <laughs> but what he was saying was that they're the number one search being made is a blank search. And what was profound about that was in a lot of cases, people don't know what it is they want to find. And so they're actually looking for something to be suggested to them. Um, I'll give you another example. I was speaking to a, a very senior leader who has a very uh, uh, data-rich business. They're in the manufacturing space. And they have oodles of data, absolutely oodles, which, by the way, is a technical term. As a data practitioner, I can assure you that's a technical term. So he was saying that they have so much data that the business, in, in a lot of cases, doesn't actually know what they want to see. They want to see some charts. They want to see some dashboards. But if you're the the data engineer responsible for building those dashboards, they're going to say, well, what do you want to see? And the business is going to come back and say, we don't know. We want you to suggest something. And so I think where where AI and generative AI in particular can be really helpful is actually producing that initial 
that initial response, that initial set of data to look at. And then the business is always great at responding and saying, this is completely wrong. I don't want to see this at all. I want to see this other thing. So it actually kickstarts a conversation. So the, the takeaway here is when we're thinking about AI, we should think about where are there uh, underskilled or inexperienced workers um, which can be aided by AI. I think that's absolutely one. I think the second though, is where do you typically start from scratch and how can you start from the first response as opposed to just looking at that blank sheet? I think I think we've all looked at that blank sheet of paper and said, I don't know where to respond. And yet, if somebody hands you something uh, which is incorrect, you say, well, this is totally wrong. Right. I absolutely know where to go from here, right? And so it's that same idea. That's interesting. I'd, I'd be curious to know, I mean, you're having all these conversations with CIOs and senior leadership, um, where do you find the most skepticism around deploying AI? And maybe like a different way to ask this is where has it typically kind of failed to meet expectations in the past where it is now much better equipped to meet those expectations? It's a good question. I think the areas that I've seen where AI has underwhelmed is around accuracy. ChatGPT, when you first start playing with it, looks phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's only after you start running some of the code that it generates and that code doesn't actually compile that you realize, "Mm, maybe this isn't actually all there. And so I think using AI uh, in an appropriate way, I think, is is, um, the way to align your expectations versus what it can do today. Um, I I think that there's certainly if you look at, at Twitter, there's all sorts of conversations around AI building whole applications in the blink of an eye. And I think in practice, the quality is not there yet. But the parallel um, is is maybe think about Wikipedia. Uh, So think about how Wikipedia, it's crowdsourced, it's not guaranteed to be accurate, but it's usually pretty good. Mm -hmm. And it's usually pretty good and good enough for whatever the application is. So will AI generate absolutely perfect code or an absolutely perfect translation or absolutely perfect summary? No, probably not. But Will it be good enough? And I think the answer might be yes. Um, Mark Andreessen, famous venture capitalist, uh, was on Lex Friedman's podcast just recently. And he had this uh, the, the same analogy to Wikipedia. And he was saying that Wikipedia is, uh, it's not deterministically correct, but it's probabilistically correct, meaning it's good enough for the function. And so I think I think when you view AI in that way, it, it can be helpful. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll change the question a little bit and I'll answer a question you didn't ask, which is where are people not deploying AI due to fear? And that tends to be the areas that are very heavily regulated. So I'm seeing a lot of, of skepticism and concern and fear about data exfiltration risk, about accidental data disclosures, about, hey, if, I, if one of my users copies and pastes PII from some European citizen, am I, have I just committed a GDPR violation, right? Like there's a lot of concern there around the data risk that AI presents. Um, And I'm seeing that hold back certain businesses um, from potentially getting the value of AI because of that perceived risk. From, From where you're sitting, I mean, do you think that fear is warranted? I think that it is warranted. Let me let me give you a, a practical example. Um, in the capital markets and, and hedge funds are notorious uh, about this. In a lot of cases, even if you don't know what a hedge fund is is interested in, you can glean a lot of information just by the questions that they ask. So I'll give you a hypothetical example. Let's say that uh, uh, that a hedge fund was asking questions like, 
when was when was the the, the large oil and gas Suncor? When was it founded? Um, how many employees does it have? What was their revenue last year? What are the revenue expectations going to be next year? Now, the hedge fund hasn't explicitly told us, hey, I'm interested in Suncor. Right. However, they've implicitly told us a lot about where their time and attention is. So how does that relate to AI? Well, if you have a large pool of users and they're all asking questions about a particular topic, a particular company, a particular region, you can glean a lot of information, again, even if they haven't explicitly told you anything. And so companies who are concerned about their corporate secrecy for whatever reason, either for regulatory reasons or just from a competitive reason, um, that could be problematic. Then if you go the next level, uh, you know, going back to that HR example or, or a programming example, hey, what happens when a, a developer copies and pastes um, some code that they're working on to debug and it's it includes an API key or it includes a hard-coded password or, right, like you start to have some problems around the data risk. So I think both risks are real. And I think organizations are struggling with how to solve those um, in a way that is scalable, but again, enables the benefit of, of what AI can provide. So uh, speaking of the benefits, and this gets you know more to, to what Pluralock does and, and others, um, when you think about where AI has been really effective in helping kind of bolster cybersecurity generally, but thinking about things like, um, you know, making up for the shortcomings of, of 2FA, which you mentioned, multi-factor authentication, um, helping in, in, in data loss prevention, like where are you really seeing kind of big steps being taken? Well, I think in, in addition to the examples that we've already touched on, right, like helping the junior folks um, mm-hmm. get up to speed, helping go from from zero to one, starting from a blank, blank sheet of paper. I mean, one of the areas that I think could see some um, some improvement uh, would be data loss prevention or DLP. I think that that's been a, a fairly static industry. There have been incremental improvements, but I'm quite interested to see what uh, what generative AI in particular um, could do for, for that uh, industry. You know, unfortunately, I think uh, when we're talking about the attackers, obviously the bad guys are, are now able to, to write very convincing phishing emails at scale. They could always do it on a one, onesie, twosie basis, but now the economic cost of writing one hyper-personalized phishing email or writing 100,000 is roughly the same. So that same um, deflationary effect that AI has for junior workers on the good guys side equally applies to the bad guys. So I think that we're going to see a lot more um, social engineering, phishing, smishing attacks. We see a lot of business email compromise. We also see a lot of gift card fraud where a junior uh, marketer who's who's fresh and new into the organization gets a text message From saying, hey, it's the boss. Yeah. Hey, I, I need you to buy some gift cards right now. I can't tell you why. And unfortunately, a lot of them fall for it. I mean, we've a, a bunch of uh, the customers that, that we work with and, and folks in the community, I hear from regularly saying, yeah, we got hit. It was a couple hundred dollars, a couple thousand dollars. For business email compromise, um, where somebody gets an email that looks genuine, it's from a vendor they worked with, uh, and they say, hey, you know, change the wire details, and boom, before you know it, a million, two million dollars is out the door. Um, I had a, I had a situation, uh, I got a call with that exact scenario just, just a couple of weeks ago. So I think we're going to see a lot of that. And so as, a, as an industry, we are going to have to respond with better tools to be able to better um, identify and hopefully block a lot of those malicious communications. The the last one, though, which is the one that I think is is sort of a, a new version of the same type of threat is 
deep fake video and deep fake voice is now a lot easier as well. So it's not just going to be an email or a text message, which frankly, a lot of people still fall for. But what happens when you get a phone call and it sounds like it's Robert and he says, hey, I'm, I'm in a jam. I need you to text my passport number to me right now. Well, this this exact situation actually happened on 60 Minutes just a couple of weeks ago. And it was a it was a uh, it was a social engineering attack against a producer at 60 Minutes and, and who said, you know, they they imitated being a reporter that that producer worked for. Uh, producer absolutely sent the passport details to the the social engineering attacker, and uh, and all of that was caught on film. Um, and so it's a it's a harrowing example. It's terrifying, exactly because it's now so easy to do. So I think we're going to have to come up with some responses to to the, these new types of attacks and these attacks, which I expect will will increase in scale. Is this going to be a situation where it's like the cyber criminals are always going to be ahead, even though because everybody has access to the same tools? I mean, it's kind of like you you can never do enough to get ahead of the threat. I, I know that's kind of a, like a, a fatalistic way to look at this, and probably I mean you're you're going to give me an interesting response, but I, I like what, what do you think? I think like any conflict, things have perhaps been easier for the attackers or EVs easier for the defenders, depending on where we were at a static point in time. Yeah. I mean, if I, I think about the nineties, which was basically antivirus and passwords, right? Those were your defenses. And as long as you had a decent updated antivirus system and you had a reasonable password, you were actually really reasonably secure. The, the organizations or the systems that were getting compromised were typically running outdated, uh, unpatched systems, uh, with obvious deficiencies. And so you could feel pretty good, right? Don't click on links and email, have an antivirus, and you were, you were, you were basically good to go. Now, I think that the, uh, the power has shifted more to the attackers. Um, and that's why on the, on the defensive side, we've had to move to strategies like zero trust and defense in depth, because we basically guarantee that the first couple of layers of defenses are either going to be compromised or circumvented. And it's not—it's now not about keeping the bad guys out. It's being able to respond quickly enough when they inevitably get in. So I would say that the initiative is more on the attacker's side right now. Uh, but I think that this is this is swayed back and forth over the years. Um, and so I don't think that that uh, it's doom and gloom. I do think that we need to to act differently. I think that we need to. Uh, make sure that we're deploying the right controls. I think it's making sure that we have good user awareness. I think it's complying to various standards. Uh, it, it doesn't matter which standard, right? There's so many to choose from. Just pick one, comply with it. Um, and I think that you're going to be better off than most. Um, but there's still opportunity here to to do better. And that's really what we focus on, on doing with our customers. Kind of switching topics here. What obligation do you think organizations have to use AI responsibly and what do you think responsible looks like? That's a great question. I think it depends on the organizations themselves. I think if you're working with data that is sensitive, uh, either because it contains personal identifiable information, personal health information, um, I think that you have a, a it's a higher bar uh, that you have when working with that data and, and being intentional about what tools you decide to use to work with that data. I think if you're if you're in a in an organization where you don't uh, handle data that belongs to somebody else or that impacts somebody else, um, I think it's a little bit different. It's also a different story if you're 
if you're building AI models yourself, um, you know, then things like bias and, and making sure that data is representative um, is also important. So I would say that it depends on the business themselves. I think, I think really just having an awareness and intentionality is the thing that is probably universal. So what, what data do we collect today? How are we using that? Where are there approved sandboxes? Where are there uh, no-fly zones uh, of where you shouldn't be using data? I think that the, the trend that I've seen for sophisticated organizations um, is that most organizations that I would say are doing a good job today have very clear AI governance policies or even data policies that cover the use of AI. So governance and awareness is the first one. And they've implemented some amount of controls to ensure adherence to those policies. Mm -hmm. That's really where the companies that are doing a good job sit today. Um, I mean, we have uh, we have a little bit of guidance around um, around some of that, and and we're we're happy to share at pluralock.com/slash/security for AI, all one word. Um, so we're happy to, to help. But you know, unfortunately, Robert everybody is starting from the same place, which is this, this stuff has only been around a couple of months when it comes to generative AI and everybody's trying to figure out how to do this safely. Yeah, well put. Um, for for organizations um, set aside generative AI, like it, they have not even really started thinking about this. And it's probably not a lot of the ones that you're talking to. It's not it's not in the enterprise. It's not the big government organizations, um, but 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 maybe the smaller businesses that are starting to kind of dip their toes into this from a from a cybersecurity and compliance perspective, like where would you even start? Like, what are the things that you absolutely need to know to kind of prepare for a lot of these emerging threats that you're talking about? For small businesses in particular, it's crucial to determine what is your cybersecurity ecosystem. So that could include your your internal staff. If you've got an IT guy, if you've got a, a cybersecurity practitioner internal, it, it also includes your insurance provider. It includes your law firm. If you work with a, a VAR, a reseller, a security vendor of some kind and includes them. Figure out who the people are around you who are focusing on this stuff on a on a full-time regular basis and be receptive when they come to you and say, hey, I've got a potential risk here. We've got a potential solution. Let's talk to you about it. Be receptive to that and and realize that this stuff is changing on a on a daily basis and you really need to try and stay ahead. Now, the good news is if you are able to stay ahead, uh, if you're able to patch your systems, if you're able to make sure that you've got controls in place that are working and that you've tested that they're working, you're going to be uh, much further ahead than most of your peers. So this is an achievable goal, but it starts with awareness and, and recognition um, that there are steps that you have to take in order to stay safe. When you think about, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave us with this, um, when you think about Plural lock and, and the work that you are doing, and you think about the next couple of years, like what's what's the stuff that really gets you excited? Like where is this going? I, the thing that gets me most excited right now is working with business owners, CIOs, and CISOs on the future of AI. I, I think that there is just so much potential um, around the use of AI, um, and the the key part here is us as a as a service provider because we are in service of our customers. It's about how do we enable the safe use of AI? Um, and I'm just so excited about, about seeing these use cases, uh, which again, could be very mundane. It could be, it could be shaving off 30 seconds of somebody's day, um, or it could be actually quite dramatic of, of maybe somebody is able to take on the role of four people because of what these new improvements are able to make. 
Um, and so I think that there's there's just so much opportunity um, and uh, and we as as that cybersecurity service provider were able to help uh, do so safely. I, I just think that it's going to be a very exciting uh, next couple of years ahead of us. And, and I know you all have some some resources that you're working on. We're talking about it before starting recording. Um, if, if people are looking for that stuff, where, where what what's coming and where can they find it? I would absolutely encourage people to check out pluralock.com slash safety for AI. Uh, that's going to be the, the spot to go. Um, we've got some uh, best practices there uh, around uh, how to leverage some of these new tools safely. It also has some recommendations around things to look out for. Um, and so it's a great resource. If you are an organization, you're still trying to figure out how can we use ChatGPT and other forms of large language models? What are some of the concerns that we should look out for? What are some tools that we can use to, to start this exploration or this uh, this sandbox environment? How can we use these tools safely? Um, and it gives some additional guidance uh, afterwards as well around uh, things to think about from a governance perspective. So pluralock.com slash safety for AI. They're also more than welcome to reach out to uh, to myself. Um, so my name is Ian L. Patterson. Uh, I'm easily reachable on LinkedIn, on Twitter. Um, and we're we're excited to, to chat with folks further about uh, about this this new space. Excellent. We'll link to all this stuff in the show notes and on our blog as well. So uh, go to aptiga.com and it'll all be there. Um, Ian, this was a great conversation. I wish we had like another hour or two. So hopefully you'll you'll come back and join us. But uh, we really appreciate you being here. Likewise. And uh, I don't know, maybe we can we, we can chat again. I'm sure the world will look completely different in six months from now. Uh, so we can we can maybe do an update. It'll, it'll probably look a lot different three weeks from now. So true. Uh, yeah, look forward to it. Thanks a lot. Thank you.